everyone to our uh, ongoing AO Trauma Hand Internet Live session. Uh, tonight, we're uh, pleased to be joined uh, by Hill Hastings. Um, Hill is an emeritus uh, professor of orthopedic surgery from uh, Indiana University. Um, and he's now, uh, we'll talk about this in a little bit. He, he des describes it as semi-retired in Telluride, Colorado. Um, Hill uh, trained in general surgery, microsurgery at the University of Colorado, then did his residency um, in uh, orthopedic surgery at Harvard, uh, fellowship at Indiana Hand to Shoulder Center, Indiana University, uh, where he then made his career from 1981 to 2015. And uh, again, he describes himself as semi-retired, but he's got a lot of involvement in Telluride. Uh, again, in addition to uh, Hill that we're going to be spending uh, our evening with, um, Kim, Kim Mesra is going to help us out and uh, field your questions. So thank you for joining us. Um, we, we put together a very clinically based talk to give some insights into Hill's career. The way this is set up, um, we have a number of sections based upon uh, things that uh, Hill has been formative in. Um, and each of these sections is, is sort of started with a case. So this first case is a 63-year-old right-hand dominant woman uh, who had a left elbow fracture as a child. She uh, now compa complains of pain and limited range of motion um, in her left elbow. Next is her radiographs. Uh, and as you can see, pretty significant um, uh, radiocapitellar and ulnar trochlear arthritic involvement uh, going along with her poor motion. Uh, so she underwent total elbow arthroplasty, as you can see here, uh, and then did well and uh, follow up. Here she is seven years later, uh, maintained her motion and uh, good function and very pleased with her results. So this sort of sets the stage for us. And I put together uh, a series of questions that I had and, and I think will be um, interesting for us. Um, as, as many of you know, uh, Hill uh, was involved in the design and the development of the Discovery uh, elbow. Um, so at the time, just to set the stage, the prevailing implant was the Coonrad Mori. Um, and I wanted to uh, sort of pick his brain on what was his inspiration um, for developing this implant compared to that problems, uh, pioneering a new design, reflections on working with industry, um, and then for those of us uh, that do total elbows, uh, some tips and tricks and surgical technique and, and some rehab ticks and tricks, tips and tricks, and then if he had it to do all over again, what would he do differently? Okay, well, thanks, Jeff. <laughs> I'll see what I could do with this. So unlinked arthroplasty, I was experienced with that in the early 80s with the Capitular Condor. The advantages are minimal bone resection, but the inherent risks are instability. It's a little tougher to restore soft tissue balance. Uh, some of the unstemmed humeral implants can migrate. And this was an example of, of a Capitular Condor that I did. She did great for six weeks and then she fractured off a very tenuous ulnar collateral uh, attachment and required reconstruction of her owner collateral. I visited Willie Souter in Edinburgh in, the, in 89 and started using his implant. This is one of the failures with a total polyethylene owner component that subsequently was revised to a metal back component. The second generation sloppy hinges such as the male mothite Coonrad were kind of, have been kind of the mainstay. And I used that through the 90s and I started seeing a high rate of wishing failure that seemed to be other, under-recognized by others and certainly in the literature with cases leading to uh, ugly black particulate polyethylene uh, debris, as you see here, failed uh, polyethylene bushings. At times, uh, the, the, it would d disassemble. And here on the right, you see a, a, a osteolysis that ended up to a fatigue fracture of the humeral implant. Tom Wright in Gainesville and I looked at a series of our cases uh, in the 90s and felt that there was really high uh, small area uh, loading on the eccentric surfaces of this implant that can lead to poly wear, polyethylene debris. Eventually you get metal on metal contact, the, the index being the C-ring popping off. 
Um, we felt that when there was more than seven degrees of varus valgus on stress, it showed significant wear. And when there was more than 10 degrees total, total failure, the bushing uh, implant. So I thought we needed a better way of accurately and reproducibly positioning the elbow flexion extension axis, a better way to distribute contact forces over a larger surface area. Um, other than a true hinge, we wanted to provide stability without a hinge. Um, in individuals without a radial head, ideally preservation of their owner collateral ligament to protect against valgus stress. Most of the implants had set sizes for the humerus and ulna. And there are oftentimes where we felt we needed a different size humerus and a different size ulna. And the male modified Coonrad at least required connecting the elbow before, uh, before impacting the humerus in all the way, which is a tricky step. Uh, the anterior flange, uh, which provides additional support and rotational support, can sometimes impact against the coronoid, leading to pistoning and loosening of the ulnar component. And also it's a little bit difficult to bone graft underneath that. So what we came up with was a hemispherical design that you see here. Uh, we studied this in the lab during the development of this, and, and our moderator, Jeff Lawton, recently, a year ago, published their, their look at the Nexel and the Discovery, pretty much underscoring that, yes, uh, it does share load over wider surfaces areas in both varus and valgus. Uh, most, most joints, hip, knee, elbow, tend to fail through the poly, so we thought we needed a method for exchange of the poly if needed. And the poly we incorporated was a highly cross-linked vitamin E poly that's been shown to be resistant to wear and oxidation. So this was a combined project with Tom Graham uh, and along with an engineer at Biomet, Bernie Burlesman. So we undertook 3D analysis of the humerus, ulna, and the canals in order to, to get perfect geometry for the stem with the, ten, with the tenet that the stem really dictates where the axis is. So for example, on this upper left, you see a male modified Coonrad in red uh, with the axis re reproduced well. But if you truly put the stem aligned down the, the course of the ulna, all of a sudden the axis of the elbow is not where it should be. So the stem really is important and the morphology is important in reproducing the axis perfectly. On the right, you see the recessed uh, fl anterior flange that sits directly against bone. So the pros, <laughs> well, the pros of working with an established company is they have, they have great engineers. Um, they have the ability to generate prototypes and they have support with patent and legal issues. Uh, Biomet was very responsive in helping develop this elbow. We would we went through several reiterations, lab testing, bench, bench testing, and so on. Obviously, industry has a wide distribution system and teaching capabilities. But on the other hand, incentives may not always be aligned. So clearly, elbow is a small market compared to shoulder, hip, and knee. And so there may, may not always be the same incentive for industry to follow what, what physician designers really needs, need, need to be done. So for example, we developed a discovery radiocapitellar replacement, a HEMI, revised ulnar bearings, revised condyles, uh, and they were slow to implement that even though we did bench and lab testing and stress testing and all of that. And then some may know that Zimmer was, uh, Biomet was acquired by Zimmer um, and that slowed down some of those developments either further. And what you see on the right is a part of the discovery system, which is a skeletal reconstructive system uh, that we developed with the discovery. And that was retained by Zimmer with the discovery kind of split between DJO, Zimmer, Biomet, and Lima. Well, so some tips, tips on doing things. A lot of surgeons have been used to describing at a, the approaches as either tricep sparing or triceps preserving. I think that's pretty confusing. So I, I prefer to use triceps on or off, which makes it very clear. So I advocate triceps off on all cases in an early uh, uh, surgeon's experience. Uh, cases with marked contracture or where the humerus is eroded into the ulna are difficult for exposure, so the triceps off makes it a lot easier. And most revision cases where you have to explant uh, components and perfectly see anatomy to redo them 
triceps off as an advantage. Triceps on, as I'll talk about, can be certainly can be done with primary simple cases without contracture. It is the go-to way for distal humerus fractures, and with experience, it can become the go-to experience for most surgeons. There are several options. The most popularized was the Brian Mori approach, where you detach the triceps and reflect it laterally. The mirror image of that is the extended coker where you detach the triceps and reflect it medially. And it is possible with that same approach to leave the triceps and ulnar collateral completely intact. I'll show you quickly a distal base triceps flap, which I believe is the easiest way and predictable way to do it. And also a method for revision. So the simplest is simply a posterior incision uh, with a distally based tricep flap that leaves Sharpie's fibers of attachment completely intact. Uh, a colleague, the late uh, Simon Frostick, looked at 100 discoveries that he did with this technique with basically no triceps failure. Here's a quick video just showing this is the back of the elbow. This is just elevating the central triceps, leaving a margin of tendon medially and laterally, and you leave it, the attachment to the olecranon completely intact. And then deeper, you make an incision midline. And then as you come down the olecranon, it's very simple. You just simply subperiosteally elevate the tissues away laterally, as shown here. And you do the same thing on the, on the medial side. It's helpful to mark the corners as you take down, take down the medial and lateral sides off the olecranon. And these can be sewn back to the base of this tricep flap on closure. So it preserves triceps vascularity. It doesn't require torquing the elbow and it gives you great exposure. The ability to separate the elbow is accomplished by the subperiosteal release laterally and then down the medial side uh, uh, all the way up to the coronoid anteriorly and then the elbow will easily dislocate. You basically have to take down three sides of the elbow. That's true of pretty much any joint that you want to totally dislocate. Surgeons have been mostly taught to release the collaterals from proximal, but I think that it's a lot more predictable and far more reliable with respect to healing when you release the collaterals distally. So that's not generally known. And then on closure, they simply fall back into position. So you don't have any specific repair required. This implant lateralizes the stem of the implant. So it does allow you to preserve the normal tension on the ulnar collateral. And in, in many cases, you don't even need to take down the uh, ulnar collateral, which helps uh, serve against as a, as a tension band for absent radial heads. Probably the biggest mistake I see surgeons uh, make using this prosthesis is they, they don't make a deep enough slot into the proximal ulna. So you need to take a five millimeter burr and make a generous slot. And then as you rasp, you need to torque the rasp posteriorly. So you truly rasp down the, the length of the, the axis of the elbow and that'll place the proximal axis in the proper position. Triceps on, when we first started, we, we used incisions medial and lateral to the triceps like Alonso Yames. And it's easy to buttonhole the humerus off to the side, but it's more difficult to see and prep the ulna. And rotational alignment is particularly important for the ulna as studies have shown that if it's malrotated by 10 degrees or more, it does lead to accelerated loading and poly wear. So most of us over time have migrated to what we call a lateral paralecranon approach. So you make an incision in the lateral third of the triceps. So the medial two thirds is completely intact you retract this lateral uh, triceps laterally. And that respects the 15 degree angle between the olecranon and the olecranon shaft and puts you in the best position for rasping and reaming down the, the axis of the ulna. For revision cases, you oftentimes need more proximal exposure. And if you try to retract the triceps all the way off to one side, that's difficult. So a guishend split, just a midline split is the easiest way to do that. Um, it gives you great ex extensile exposure for both the humerus and the ulna. Uh, if you were to go medially with a, with a Brian Mori, oftentimes you need to re-dissect the ulnar nerve and it can be densely scarred, difficult and dangerous to do so. Uh, so this is the easiest way to do so. Recognize also that with fracture, 
and with revision cases where you add, you're lacking the distal humerus, the more proximal humerus becomes very voluminous. So here, for example, is a six millimeter stem. You can see how small it is within the diameter, which would lead to a very large cement mantle. So as part of this project, we developed the SRS comprehensive system that allows you to choose various diameters of stems and various lengths of humeral stems, and then various lengths of buildup for the discovery distally. And this has been a great tool for revision surgery. So here's that case where the male modified Coonrad broke the humeral and ulnar uh, stems were still secure. Here's a window in the humerus and a window in the ulnar for getting those out. And then this is the SRS with a modular uh, length of anterior flange that you can choose. Uh, here it is a position. Here's her motion on the table. And then here's her motion at six weeks. So we usually don't start motion until two. She has fair flexion at this point and fair extension. So would I do it again? Yes, of course I would. <laughs> I, think, I think for all of us, it's, 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 really a, it's really rewarding to take on a new problem and work collaboratively toward, towards a solution. Of all the things I've been involved in, I re I've realized that it's not a one-step process. You need to develop, uh, test the prototypes, um, study it, run anat anat anatomical labs, uh, put it into, into clinical practice and then study your results. And there's oftentimes uh, progressive changes or tweaks that need to happen. But I think the downside is, you know, there's no assurance you can maintain control if you work with established industry. Um, per, the, perhaps the ideal is to develop your own company and do it that way. Uh, but for me, this was a good way to go. All right, excellent. So uh, our next case is uh, arthroplasty, but of a different fashion. Uh, again, as many of you know, um, Hill uh, developed the hemihamate arthroplasty. Um, so this is a young lady um, who injured her left ring finger um, some time ago. So it's a subacute injury uh, and she's got this sort of missed or untreated PIP uh, fracture subluxation. Uh, she's got pain limited range of motion. And as you can see, um, that ring finger is deviating away from the middle finger and it's scissoring over the small finger. Uh, you know, so that's the axis where things lie. That's her cascade. But, but again, you get the sense that that ring finger needs to be over uh, more adjacent to the middle finger. Um, so, um, you know, in addition to getting her more motion and decreasing her risk of developing arthritis, we want to point her ring finger in the right direction. So these are uh, a couple representative cuts of a CT and you see this dorsal subluxation um, with this central Im uh, impacted type fracture uh, that again uh, is, is now subacute, deviated, uh, well healed. Uh, so we chose to reconstruct this with a hemihamate arthroplasty. So this is her ring finger. Uh, you're looking at it end on. The head of the proximal phalanx is to our right. The base of the middle phalanx is to our left. Um, and then you can see the, this volar portion of the middle phalanx where the articular surface uh, doesn't look so healthy and the dorsal, it looks much better. So uh, we did a hemihamate arthroplasty, again, uh, harvesting from the, um, the, fifth, the fourth, fifth CMC joint. Uh, here you see the graft. Um, and again, he'll tell us about his inspiration for this, uh, but you can see that uh, the intracondylar uh, uh, sulcus there um, that's nicely recreated with this graft. Um, and then you can see it implanted in the next slide. Uh, so again, we're taking it from the dorsal aspect of the hamate and rotating it around in this case to the volar aspect of the middle phalangeal base. Um, and this is looking at it and appreciating the anatomy end on. So you see the hamate uh, to your left and the base of the middle phalanx to your right. Uh, and again, you see that intracondylar uh, prominence that's going to recreate the base of the middle phalanx for us nicely. Uh, so uh, clinically, so here's this young lady. Uh, we have our graft in place secured uh, by a couple of uh, 1.0 millimeter screws. Um, and then you can see in the next slide with her uh, joint reduced, uh, how her cascade is now restored. So that ring finger is now pointed where the ring finger is supposed to be pointed. Um, and then you can see floral pictures 
and then uh, healed pictures and she did very well. And you can see her motion. Uh, again, a little extensor lag, not surprising, uh, but good range of motion and good function. Uh, she's very happy with it. So I wanted to uh, try to get Hilda to share with us his inspiration, what he feels are the indications and maybe some contraindications. Uh, when is it too late? Uh, you know, in other words, we don't, we wanna be careful that when we're a hammer, not everything is a nail. So um, when is it too far gone? And then obviously some tips and tricks with regard to both the surgery and then what he's found through the rehab in these patients. Thanks, Jeff. Well, the popular technique has been the boulder plate orthoplasty, first described by Eaton and Malarich. And in the 80s, I found that unfortunately, this wasn't very predictable in my hands. Uh, we had the occasion for Dick Eaton to give grand rounds, and we did three cases with him the following day. Uh, the pins were removed at three weeks, and unfortunately, uh, despite this, they, they re-dislocated. Um, John Ernst and I, was a fellow of mine at the time, thought that, well, maybe a dynamic external fixation could help with the stiffness, but also maintain congruity. So looking at biomechanics of the PIP, we found that there was, in fact, an instant center of motion that coincided within a millimeter on the basis of which you could design a fixator, a mobile fixator. And so we applied this to roller plate orthoplastic cases. And then unfortunately, repeat dislocation still happened once the fixer came off. So we looked in the lab. This is Ward Hamlet uh, doing a study with me, taking away a portion of the articular base of the, of the proximal phalanx. And what we found is that up to 42% you could get rid of with no instability problems. And then as you get up to 50%, as you see here, uh, it's, it's congruent mostly up to extension, but then as you start to flex, uh, the joint simply hinges and then caves into that compacted defect. It didn't matter in this case where the collaterals were intact or sectioned or sectioned and the joint dislocated. The collaterals play no role with dorsal palmar uh, stability. And once you lose up to 62% of the joint, it doesn't matter what position you hold the joint in. Um, basically, you have to hold it in more and more flexion the more you take away. And after you get to 60%, it's unstable in all positions. Uh, Bruce Steinberg was a fellow with me, and we looked at various options from tendon to toe. Uh, and in the lab, these are some of Bruce's dissections looking at possible osteochondrographs from the hand. So he created a defect in the base of the middle phalanx. We thought that the dorsal hamate might be a suitable option to place to restore the volar base. This is one of the first cases done uh, in the lab just with, with pins or K-wires uh, on the basis of which we, we recognize that it restored immediate stability and could allow for early range of motion. So the indications have come to be comminuted, unstable, PIP fracture dislocations, just like the index case that uh, we just showed. Um, both acute and, and neglected. Sometimes you'll have just a single lateral plateau from a deviation injury. And all too commonly, unfortunately, it, we see it needed for salvage after failed, failed treatment by X-fix, open reduction, internal fixation, or palmar plate arthroplasty. I don't really know <laughs> uh, when uh, damage is too bad. So here, for example, is uh, very damaged proximal phalanx. Here's kind of what's left of the dorsal base of the middle phalanx. Um, obviously, you need good flexor and extensor mechanisms, soft tissue coverage, and you really do need a patient that could comply with postoperative therapy. So in young adolescents or rebellious individuals, uh, you may, may need to take, take care. Here for an example is a case that presented at seven months. Um, one of my partners, Rick Eidler, uh, it looked like this the, had too diffuse of arthritis, but given the options of replacement or fusion of his index, we went ahead with hemiarthroplasty. And here you see the injury to the head of the proximal phalanx. Here is the hammock graft. Um, here it is secured with screw fixation. And he in fact uh, turned out to be one of the better matches. There is some morphologic variability to the hammock. 
And then he did fine, full flexion. And then I think as pretty much all my cases, there's some mild residual extension deficit or passive flexion contracture, which is usually not an issue, but I think that's pretty typical. Here's probably the worst case, the most, the, uh, someone who had been prolonged, dislocated for a year or more, the, the base kind of riding on the dorsal metacarpal, but, the, but part of the dor dorsal joint intact. Here, the hamate is in position. The hamate has thicker cartilage than the, than the middle phalanx, so you will see an offset apparent on x-ray, even though you know the cartilage lines up perfectly. And I think the reason some of these late cases still can do okay is because, because the palmar part of the joint still may be relatively intact as it articulates both with the graft inflection and the more dorsal part in, in full flexion. So some tips, I'll give you two tips. Um, so we take a rectangular graft from the hamate. This is the base of the fourth and fifth. Um, and there's variability in how lax the carpometacarpal joints are. The, os the osteotomy is most accurately performed inside the joint. And with a lax joint, that's not a problem. But in a tighter joint, it's hard to get your osteotome in. So the trick is simply to take away the dorsal part of the fourth and fifth metacarpals. It will no longer articulate anyway. And this gives you the, the perfect axis for taking this graph, which should go deeper as you go more proximal. So it goes from distal dorsal to proximal deeper. And I'll show you that in a minute. So the second tip is the most important thing to make sure people do well, is to reproduce the concavity of the articular base. If you fail to do that and it comes out too flat, then you end up with dorsal palmar shear forces that can break the joint down. There are two tricks to doing that. The first is to make sure the distal part of the graft is thicker than the proximal part. So there again is the need for that angle as you do the osteotomy into the hamate. Uh, one may be tempted to, to simplify the defect in a rectangular position. It's actually better to leave a little ledge distally and to make your simplification of the recipient bed a bit of an angle. And then that in itself leads to tipping of the graft. Those of you who have done it will notice that the distal part of the graft sometimes can be prominent, almost always is a bit prominent. You can just simply excise that as your screw fixation is proximal to that. Rehab, there's nothing secret about that. If you try to move them too early, they're just too swollen. So the answer is usually three to five days, usually th uh, four or five days. Edema control is critical. You can work on active and passive range of motion. Uh, we usually do put a five de degree dorsal block splint just to protect the repaired volar plate at the end of the procedure. And healing is usually sufficient enough by six weeks so you can begin strengthening. And if there is any residual passive flexion contracture, you can start working with that. So in a nutshell, that's kind of the tips, the two main tips, I think, for making it work well. Excellent. So um, our next uh, phase is going to introduce um, a topic that uh, Hill has uh, been, been around uh, throughout the evolution. Um, and this is a, a case of a 17-year-old uh, high school quarterback who injured his right wrist. The trainer taped the quote-unquote sprain. Uh, he made it through summer conditioning and the entire season um, and then came to see me after his season. And he's got this very small proximal pole uh, scaphoid non-union uh, with avascular changes. You can see it looks sclerotic. Um, so uh, we uh, performed a vascularized bone graft. And to orient you, this is the, uh, the one, two ICSRA. So this is a right wrist. The thumb is up and to the right. The elbow is to your left. Um, you see the freer elevator pointing at the pedicle. Uh, you see the prominence of the second dorsal compartment and then the first dorsal compartment in the background. Uh, and then in the subcutaneous tissue, you see the um, radial sensory branch. So this is uh, what it looks like when we harvest our graft. And then uh, we go ahead and uh, insert it. Here you see his uh, radiographs with insertion and then healing. Uh, I, I get a CT scan uh, to prove uh, uh, trabecular bone bridging. Uh, he did well and you can see his range of motion uh, it's his right wrist. 
Uh, and again, a little loss of extension, but uh, you know, I'd, I'd take this 10 times out of 10. Uh, good, good range of motion, good deviation. Uh, and he got back to his, uh, his level of sport, uh, finished his high school, and then went on to play in college. Um, the, uh, if you wanna advance, Hill. So um, we're going to talk about a reflection of where we've been with the Zeidenberg graft and, and it came out and like many things in, in hand surgery and orthopedic surgery uh, was, uh, was supposed to, if you go back one hill, it, uh, it was supposed to address a, a specific task and uh, it was maybe a little too widely applied uh, and then fell out of favor a little bit. Uh, we looked at our group um, in a, a very specific population uh, of very uh, small proximal pole fractures um, in 12 patients uh, and had 100% union in an average of uh, 11 and a half weeks. Uh, so we, we're happy with it in these cases. Um, and uh, I just wanted to get Hill's reflections on uh, some, some of the pearls of the relevant anatomy. And again, looking at the whole time span of, of where we've been uh, with the vascularized bone graft, beginning with the wide uh, adaptation of Zeidenberg, then falling out of favor, other pedicle uh, flaps and grafts, free medial femoral condylar graft, and then the thought that, well, do we really need this anyway? And isn't it just good carpentry that we need and just can't sell us bone and a compression screw? Uh, so where does Hill think it sits now? Well, this is a big topic. <laughs> I'll give you a little history on this. So in the center, upper, upper center, you see some latex injection studies that Carl Seidenberg and I did. Um, and, the, and the pertinent anatomy to the 1-2 ICSRA that Jeff just presented. And you can see it here coming off the radial artery and then coming back proximally underneath the brachioradialis. There are vessels between each of these compartments and they provide blood supply distal to the epiphyseal plate. So you can take vascularized grafts also from Lister's tubercle from the floor of the fourth compartment. You can use them in different carpal applications. Um, and uh, we also determined that there are volar carpal arteries off the communicating vessel between the anteroceous artery and the radial artery that can be similarly harvested as a vascularized bone graft and rotated. I'll talk about that. Uh, for many, many years, people use vascularized iliac crest grafts, and more recently with the Mayo Clinic, the popularization of the medial femoral artery graft off the descending genicular, genicular vessels. Carlos and I tried to determine where the biggest amount of vascular bone was, and this is some uh, India ink injection studies. We also tried with gadolinium, and we found that the biggest, the biggest area of vascularity was about 12 millimeters proximal to the radial styloid. It's interesting, if you do this in an adolescent, you'll see the epiphyseal plate and you'll, you'll see that it's vascular distal to that and not so much proximal. But as the epiphyseal plate closes, that zone of vascularity extends much more proximal. So this is really a blood supply distal to the epiphysis that then becomes more generalized once the epiphyseal plate uh, closes. Is it better? Yeah, vascularized grafts are better. Uh, this is a canine study by Alan Bishop and colleagues at the Mayo Clinic. They took a canine model carrying out a fusion of the wrist with vascularized grafts. Uh, one graft, they, they did cryotherapy to the graft and none of those healed. Uh, my former partner, Greg Merrill with the late Joe Slade looked at five studies using uh, uh, for, for proximal pole non-union. Uh, with 88% success with vascularized bone grafts and 47% without in a trend towards better results when there was previous surgery. Uh, here's a large series, a large meta-analysis of articles, 5,000 plus patients, again showing a trend uh, with just cast 80% union, non-vascularized graft with internal fixation 84, vascularized 91. So there is a trend towards better and quicker healing with vascularized grafts, but yes, you don't always need them. And a number of studies have shown that non-unions can heal with a non-vascularized graft through a simpler uh, way of just adding cancellous graft and screw fixation. 
So where do the sins? So this is uh, my former fellow, uh, Jenny Green. She practices in Australia now, looking at Carlos's and my cases, uh, 106 cases. Uh, basically, we found 92% union confirmed by CT or in Argentina experience by tomograms. If you look at the Mayo Clinic experience, uh, lesser union rate, 72%. And very, Ill very important is that humpback deformity was predictive of non-union. So it's hard to sort out the variables between one study and another, success and another, because there are many, many reasons for failure. A uh, number of studies have shown that union rates are twice, uh, twice that uh, in non-smokers non as smokers. Uh, and as we found, and also the Mayo Clinic study, 50% of the failures were failure to correct deformity. Um, also, previous surgery was, can, can affect, and a number of studies have shown that success rate diminishes with longer durations, particularly with non-unions over five years, which relates to osteonecrosis. Probably the, our ability or inability to correct deformity perfectly is illustrated here by Lottie Nashi in Schweitzer in, in Switzerland, looking at nine patients with patient-specific 3D guides, uh, reproducing uh, anatomy within seven degrees, and by conventional freehand, uh, 26 degrees. So we're not always as good as we think we are with just freehand uh, correction of deformity. I think one of the really important concepts that was, was put forth by my friend Uli Buchler and Lottie Neji, where they classified non-unions into class one, as you see in the upper right, where basically the fracture plane is proximal to the dorsal ridge vessels. So the proximal pole becomes avascular. And early on, the trabeculi are pretty normal. You have osteoplastic, osteoplastic activity most non-unions still have osteoplastic activity, but if you have motion and time going on long enough, then you get osteoclastic activity that takes over. And as you see here, you get trabecular failure. You get collapse of the trabeculi. They crush and collapse on each other. Uh, the proximal pole looks more dense. And basically, in class one, you have intact vascular and trabecular network that can pretty quickly revascularize. Uh, in class two, you don't have uh, really intact structural trabeculi or vascular networks that can easily spread uh, vascularity once healing starts to happen. So it really comes down to this. It really does come down to biology versus carpentry. So with vascularized bone grafts, there's clearly a, an advantage in time to heal. It adds osteogenic potential but it is more difficult with respect to carpentry. On the other hand, non-vascularized grafts, it's easier carpentry-wise to, to restore a good stable buttress, but the downside is you're stacking up non-viable tissue or poorly viable tissue, I should say, in the middle. So here, for example, is the 1-2 ICSRA, and as you rotate that distally, the width oftentimes becomes not wide enough to really serve the mechanics of what you need. So this works great for scaphoid fractures and small uh, cystic non-unions, but it may fail uh, with larger ones. Uh, you should also recognize that many non-unions you can handle just by screw fixation alone, if it's a fibrous union or minimal sclerosis. Uh, smaller cystic deformities uh, you can handle by arthroscopic bone graft and fixation or open fi graft and fixation, but we're really talking about non-vascularized versus vascular comes down to the humpback deformities with large cystic change in bone loss more than five millimeters. And clearly, if, if the proximal and distal fragments are vascular and they're reasonably large, the easiest way is cancellous bone graft and a screw. So where do we sit? Well, I, I agree with uh, what Jeff has shown us. This, the, for small proximal pole fragments as seen here, the 1-2 ICSRA is the easiest way. It's, uh, it's adjacent to the scaphoid. It's easy to rotate it into position. Where it fails, and I think where it's gotten a bad name, is in the larger defects with longstanding non-unions uh, with scant or absent vascularity and perhaps some of the minor class two. And this is where volar graphs really fit the bill, I believe. This is an article just published this year by cases from Greg Summerkamp, Jeff Greenberg, and myself looking at the pedicled uh, 
palmar radio carpal artery. You can see this is a class two. You can see the, there's cystic and collapse deformity. It looks like it's quite distal, but if you look at the sagittal view, in fact, it's, it's a oblique non-union with only a very small proximal pole. So here is the harvest spot. It lies very ulnar and distal, uh, and you free it up on this communicating vessel and rotate it in. And it gives you a sizable cortical cancerous graph. So in this study, we looked at 15 patients, all had a vascular proximal pulse. We looked at CTs at six and 12 weeks to determine the percentage of healing across the non-union site and found that at six weeks, all of them had at least 70% healing across and then it further progressed after that. There are times where it doesn't work. This is one of my failures out of that 106 case series. Uh, deform proximal pole, and you're better off a salvage uh, method like such as proximal carpectomy or slack wrist reconstruction. So that's kind of that's kind of how I look look at it, and it, it takes studying the the scaphoid to really figure out you know where where you are with it. All right, so now we're going to switch gears a little bit. This is a 32 year old woman uh, with pain and limited range of motion, uh, and this is her in the OR uh, flexing her right elbow. So um, in this case, we did a capsulectomy through a medial approach. Um, and you see um, the, the column type approach um, and going anteriorly excising a capsule, either um, decompressing or transposing the ulnar nerve and going posteriorly. Uh, and then here you see her uh, doing well and, and happy with her return of motion um, after capsulectomy. So I wanted to get Hill's thoughts on um, how to treat contracture, um, what his indications are for capsulectomy, um, how he chooses to go medial, to go lateral, uh, maybe when not to offer a capsulectomy. Um, and then also as a, as a little side branch, um, without getting too far down the rabbit hole, talking about the role for interposition arthroplasty um, and possibly uh, even hemiarthroplasty. Thanks, Hill. Okay, Jeff, you're challenged to me. That's a lot to cover. <laughs> so it's been shown that, or thought that a 50% reduction in elbow motion reduces upper extremity function by almost 80%. So a functional arc is somewhere 35 to 130. I rarely see patients present requesting something be done until they've lost at least 40 degrees of extension. So the indications are when they fall outside this functional arc. Most of the time, lateral is the way to go. Um, it's simpler. Um, it's certainly the way to go when you have contracture without any ulnar nerve problems. You can always add a small medial incision for in situ decompression. And oftentimes with trauma, more often than not, the pathology is about the radiocapitellar joint or posterolateral ulnar trochlear joint. So it's simpler and easier. Uh, it's obvious to see overgrown olecranon and coronoid. So the essence is to debride those, take out capsules, but oftentimes what's missed is the gutter enlargement. And so you don't see this on plain x-rays unless you get an axial view or a CT. And these can ca cause pain, impinge, and limit extension. It's easy, other than arthroscopy, which is a whole other topic, it's easy to get at these laterally and also to add a small incision medially here through the medial head of triceps posterior to the ulnar nerve. And that takes you right down to the medial gutter. And here you see the medial olecranon. When I first looked up our post-traumatic cases, 23% of the time, uh, my approach was medial. And that was mainly to transpose the ulnar nerve, decompress the nerve. Here, for example, is a nerve encased with heterotopic ossification that required extrication and transposition. Uh, obviously, if you need to reconstruct the ulnar collateral. Earlier in this series, uh, I often felt we needed it for ap application of a compass hens or mobile fixator. But now I think it's easier to do with just a unilateral fixator or internal joint stabilizer from the lateral side. So that's changed a little bit. As to young and post-traumatic cases, uh, interposition versus hemiarthroplasty. Here, for example, is a young rheumatoid in his 20s, uh, interposition with tendon Achilles and a mobile fixer applied. What are the results of these? The largest series from the Mayo Clinic, 69 right. patients. But if you look at the details of this, um, they excluded seven of the failures. And even with that, they still ended up 
with 14 fair and 11 poor, or basically two thirds were fair or poor. So not so good, I think. And a lot of that depends, and I think relates to the necessity of restoring the radial head. This is the technique I used that was recently uh, written up, uh, published June of 19, applying a plate laterally, uh, removing the plate, carrying out a lateral epicondyle osteotomy, uh, exposure of the joint for tendon Achilles interposition and then reapplying the plate. And then this is his x-rays uh, with, he also required a distal radial ulnar joint replacement. Hemiarthroplasty, I don't have that much experience with it because it's not FDA approved in the US. You have to use it as a custom device. So here, for example, is a discovery uh, with an add-on hemi uh, and replacement of the radial head. Um, all the studies have come from outside the United States, and I'll just reference one by Greg Bain and colleagues who collated all the studies reported until recently, which were 121 cases, uh, feeling that there are the indications for acute distal humerus fracture that can't be fixed in active older patients. When it was applied to salvage from failed non-union or RIF, the results weren't as good. So three-year follow-up, still pretty short. 25% uh, good, eight fair, six uh, poor. Some of the poor results related to electron osteotomy. Uh, wear does progress over time and only five were at that point revised to a total elbow. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of leave that complex topic there and uh, we can take uh, question and answers or continue to move on. I'll let Jeff, Jeff uh, and Kimberly lead. Well, Hill, I just had a few questions. Th thanks. And, and I, I did ask Hill, in addition to some clinical uh, things, I, I did ask him to uh, give us some of his reflections on, on his practice and his thoughts on, on practice uh, that we could incorporate. Uh, I did, uh, Hill, that was great. Um, I had a, a, a blast putting this together with you. Um, I learned uh, a lot of things um, in terms of the hemi-hamate uh, replacement arthroplasty. I, I like that tip that you had about uh, shaping the recipient site in the, the base of the middle phalanx to sort of hedge it, to, to bring it around, to, to make that, uh, that concavity. Um, and then in the elbow capsulectomy, pointing out that uh, getting the medial lateral gutter um, osteophytes uh, is, is key. Uh, I wanted to get your sense on um, total elbows and, and what you've seen from uh, your experience and then being a recipient for problems that others have had, what do you think is the, the lower limit age-wise on um, total elbow arthroplasty? Yeah, that's a great recurring question. So age is not a number, right? Um, yeah, I was lecturing in Tampa once and I, a cab driver picked me up and he had lived in Crested Butte. I live in Telluride. And he says, you know, the difference about between Tampa and, and Telluride is in, Telluride, in Tampa, you're a young fart, but in Telluride, you're an old, old guy. <laughs> so it's not chronological age, it's activity. So it, it, people do better with inflammatory arthropathy than they do with post-traumatic just because they have limitations. They do better with the non-dominant than the dominant. Um, I think golf is a no-no. So I, cert I think certain things are just no-no. So uh, yes, I think if you apply a number, 65, 70, ideally, but oftentimes that just doesn't work. Um, but it is, it, is, it is kind of activity related more than anything. And that's where I think you have to be really careful. Um, you know, everyone says you need to keep them on a five pound weight limit. You know, a gallon of milk weighs six plus pounds uh, at, at, at refrigerator temperature. So it's less than a gallon of milk. Um, so clearly we're not, we're not where we need to be with total elbow arthroplasty compared to hip and knee. All right, there's a, a question from the audience um, and uh, now we're switching gears a little bit with your experience with hemi-hamate arthroplasty. Um, have you ever noted patients to have morbidity associated with the, the harvest, um, either pain or difficulty with range of motion, difficulty uh, bringing their hand around and, and capacitance and, and cupping? Yeah, a great question. And that was one of the concerns we had when we first started doing this. So the very first case that I did uh, we protected the carpometacarpal joints, and then we discovered they didn't need to do that. Um, I didn't put into this talk, but John Capo in New Jersey 
put together a, a lab study looking at stress to the carpal metacarpal joints after harvesting the hamate. Uh, the, the key ligaments are palmar, so you don't find issues with stability at all. And we found very few patients with any symptoms related to the harvest site. You know, initially I was concerned about that and the backup as well. If we really get into trouble, we can do a fourth and fifth CMC fusion, which still works pretty well based upon motion around the rest of the handmate. So surprisingly, we haven't found issues with that in lab studies that John Capel did with us, you know, have underscored that also. Good question. Great. So, um, Hill, why don't you uh, reshare your screen and then uh, start in on your your sagely reflections, as I as I called them. That that was my term, not not Hill's term. So I'll I'll take the fall for that. Okay. So this a this could be a, this could or should be a whole talk in itself. So I'm sorry for that. But I think the number one thing is enjoy your patients um, rather than treat them medically. It, it's really rewarding to learn something special about every patient. So even to the point where you might make a note in your chart about something that you really, something special about that person, you know, non-medical, you know, their wife, their family, sport, something that, that you can connect with them. And that does, it does a lot for not well, making it fun because you know something more about your patient, but also connecting with your patient. As physicians, we know what to do for our patients, but that doesn't always coincide with what patients understand or anticipate. So listening to your patients is super important. Uh, even though we know a procedure or, or conservative treatment that we think is the way to go, you really need to solicit what your patient thinks and wants. Thirdly, I see a lot of physicians want to hold patients at arm's length. Um, they don't really want to share their personal life, their, you know, their, their personal things. But I think there's great reward and benefit to sharing yourself with your patients. If you look at physicians that may have taken care of you, those that are really personable and you feel like you understand, uh, uh, you tend to like a lot. So I think there's great tendency for physicians to try to hold their patients away. But I think the more you open yourself up to them, the more they come to trust you and the, and the, and the better it is. Early in career, oftentimes uh, a you know, you're gonna have complications or diff difficulties. And early in the career, you may find that you wanna hope that that'll get better. But as you go along, you find that the best thing to do is embrace a difficulty or complication, talk to your patient about it and, and, and treat it head on. In the long run, you save your, yourself a lot of headaches and your patient will appreciate that. By the end of residency or fellowship, very few of us really have mastered surgical skill. It takes years and years. But the way to get there, you can do video analysis, which is super helpful, but you should never finish a case without taking a moment to think about what went great, what didn't, what you'd do differently. And certainly don't go to bed at night without kind of running through that. Six, we live in a, in a competitive world where some practices think that other practices are competitors, but we aren't. We're all colleagues with the same amazing uh, privileged profession that we have. And there's, there's great benefit to supporting every colleague, even in other practices. And sometimes down the road, practices coalesce in a practice that someone was conceived as, quote, a competitor no longer is. So we should embrace every colleague and, and kind of fight the notion that there are practices that are competitors to ones. Uh, technology does change new procedures, just like what we've been showing this last hour change. So don't accept them until you have some results and publications of how they do. But on the other hand, uh, we're in a changing world and you need to embrace that change. And so it is incremental. If you accept new ways of doing things, it happens incrementally and over five or 10 years, you may be in a radically different position, but in fact, it's happened with small, uh, small, small increments. Let's see if I can advance this. Uh, eighth, become an expert. There's, a, there's great benefit to taking one part of your practice that you're super excited about and trying to become an expert in it. Number one, it makes you a better surgeon, but number two, it gives you some sustained satisfaction. You're not gonna get bored with your practice and it'll benefit your patients. And then lastly, we all are the beneficiaries of people that trained us, people that taught. And it is our 
responsibility and it's also our joy to share our trade and, and teach it on to others. Early in the career, some people can make, lots of us make short-term decisions with immediate gratification that defer work on harder, but perhaps more fulfilling activities, such as becoming an expert or time with, 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 with marriage, children's friendships or volunteerism. I call it the death by a thousand cuts where you start working and you kind of lose track of really where you're headed. Kate Blanchett, for example, said a career is built by as much what you say no to as what you say yes to. So you might consider writing down five goals you want to spend most of your time on uh, and then say no to everything else. And don't, don't follow what others expect of you, but follow, follow your, your passion. Probably multitasking is one of the, the biggest uh, dangers in our current, our current life. As we know, it, it, it increases time to uh, complete a primary task. And a lot of people feel that busyness is kind of a code of honor. Uh, and most physicians act that way. But actually, downtime is creative time. And a lot of studies have shown that you can indeed increase your productivity while taking more breaks and playing more. So make time you carve out time in your life and you'll find that it gives you time for creative thoughts and does make you more productive even though you're taking breaks and playing more. So hopefully one of these things will give you something that will be of interest and help your career. Thank you. Great, uh, thank, thanks Hill. So a couple of questions have come up. Um, one uh, is, is again, a sort of a sagely reflection type question, and it's uh, what has AOTrauma meant to you in your personal life and your professional life? Well, AO, AO is a, it's a family. Um, so it's been one of the most important things in my life. Um, uh, it has connected me to friends all over the world. Uh, it has been the leader in education. So if you look at most companies now, they play a big role in, in education, but AO really was the model for uh, combining new developments uh, with technology. Um, so it's hard to put a finger on that. It's hard, to it's hard to put a value on what participating in a group like AO or AO International or AO North America is because they're are such amazing benefits that you just can't quantitate. You know, it's, it's something you feel, it's something that you share with other colleagues. And in the end, that's all you have is colleagues and friends and family. And when you're, when you're working on a, on a collaborative uh, effort, teaching uh, or developing things, uh, AO, AO trauma is, is an amazing venue for, for, for doing that. Agreed. So thanks. Thanks. I, I thought that was a, a great question. Um, and then another specific question about hemihamate arthroplasty. Um, a, a couple of points. Any role for plate and screws versus just the two screws? And then any concerns or any experience with FDS, attrition, uh, tendonitis, et cetera? Yeah, great question. Yeah, so I use three 1-0 screws. So what I do is I take a 0.028K wire to provisionally fix it near the joint and in the central part of the graft. And then I put in two 1-0 screws on either side, and then I swap out the K-wire uh, for, for another 1-0 screw. The K-wire is the shaft diameter of a 1-0 screw, so it basically is your pre-drill. Um, where you need a plate is the ones where there's 70 or 80% joint loss. So basically, you just have a thin part of dorsal cortex or bone that those screws can hold into. And, and the thinner the bone, and the thicker the bone, the better those screws hold. And the thinner the bone dorsally, the, the more dangerously they hold. And so the ones that are two scenarios, one, an unpredictable athlete, a hockey player that walks in with his pants halfway down, that you know may not respect your protocol. So a plate, a, a small mesh plate will help with that. So I use a one three mesh plate, cut it down to four floor holes, uh, and usually uh, just a couple of those to fix it. Or, and the second scenario is just what I said, when you have just a small amount of bone dorsally, then I think the screws alone are not quite enough. So that's a great, great, great question. I don't know about FDS attrition. Uh, what I do is I repair back the volar plate 
And you can do that because the margins of the volar plate media and laterally are pretty robust. And there's always tissue right where the collaterals attach on either side. So there's always tissue to repair back. And then the flap, the retinacular flap between the A1, A2 and A4 uh, pulleys, I reflect underneath the tendons on top of the graft. So there's one more barrier, that retinacular flap uh, between the graft and the tendons. Uh, so I can't say I've individually tested, you know, everybody's FDS, but I haven't seen obvious failures from that. Good question. Great, yeah, excellent, excellent questions. So um, we are uh, approaching an historic moment in that we're actually gonna end on time, uh, which is, uh, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, Chai, any uh, any thoughts? No, I think uh, it was really, really superb. Uh, Dr. H, thank you so much. On behalf of the entire AO North America Hand Education Committee, that was spectacular. Thank you. And Jeff, that was wonderful. Thanks, everyone. Thank you uh, so much, Dr. Hastings. That was great, Hill. Thanks, everybody, for taking your evening to log in. It's an important thing you've done, I think. And I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Good, Good night, everybody. All right. Thank you, Jeff.